single privilege to be able to meet via technology again this morning. Just want to encourage you that the joy of the Lord is our strength during these trying times and we're sending lots of love to everyone. Morning everybody, it's nice to be with you. I've really been enjoying the series on Courageous Faith and I trust you have as well. Can't wait to have some coffee around uh, underneath the tent again. Love you all and praying for you. Hey SBC, we miss you guys. Now we can't wait to see all of you when this lockdown is over. We hope that you're all staying strong and safe. Goodbye. Bye. Good morning, SBC family. I love and miss you so much, and I can't wait to give you one of my famous hugs. Let's continue to pray for each other, and I'll see you soon. Bye. Hello, SBC family. Hello. We are missing everybody so much. Can't wait to get back to church to see everybody. Sending big hugs and loves from the Abrams family. Bye. Bye. Hi, Hi SBC family. We miss you um, and we really, really hope to see you very soon. Uh, as you can see, we are well um, and hope that you are too. Cheers. Bye. <laughs> and a very warm welcome from me as well. Thanks for joining us for the service today, guys. Two quick things to bring to your attention before we dive into the sermon. First up, Wednesday night, seven o'clock, join us here on Facebook. We'll be having another combined prayer meeting, really expectant and excited to seek the Lord together through prayer. And the second announcement is actually gonna to come to you from Mark Wood. He wants to bring us an update from the eldership regarding our AGM and our future live streaming plans. So over to Mark and then have a great service, guys. Good morning, church. As you know, June is the month where we have our Vision Night. And Vision Night is a wonderful space to talk about the future of the church, but also the past and what God has done over the last year in the life of our church. The elders have taken the decision to postpone Vision Night. The main reason is because we see this as a family gathering where every single member of SPC can come and contribute. And under the current regulations, that kind of meeting just isn't possible. An online gathering is also restrictive and exclusive because some don't have access to Wi-Fi or data. And so we will be postponing our vision night until we can have a meaningful gathering where every single member of SBC can come and contribute. That's important. We have been hard at work on our budget and our budget is ready to be presented at, to our executive and then to be presented at vision night when we can meet. A uh, big thank you to Shane Beviers and Grant Young as volunteers on our finance team. They've made a massive contribution to getting that budget finalized. Thank you guys, we really appreciate you. If any of you have any questions around our finances, you're welcome to ask any of the finance team members that Shane, Grant, Debbie Hill, Matt or myself, and we'd be happy to answer any questions that you have. We are also hard at work as a staff on our COVID-19 protocols. For that reason, our office is only open uh, for emergencies, but we do have an exciting vision to have a live service in church with our, uh, live preaching and live worship. We just need to make sure that our protocols are in line with government regulations. And so we are working hard at making that vision a reality. As elders, we want to say to you, church, we love you, we pray for you, and we can't wait to meet together again in our sanctuary as a family. Good morning church, greetings from the woods. We um, are just feeling so privileged that we are able to serve this church during this season. 
and we want to tell you that we are praying for you and specifically that you are able to walk in faith despite the difficult times and that you are growing closer to the Lord on a daily basis. A scripture on our heart for you comes from Colossians chapter 1 verse 9 and it says, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Let's pray. Father God, we just pray that you will um, just lead us today um, as we hear your word. Help us to be obedient to that which we hear and help us to just walk in faith today and in your way. Amen. Amen. Over to you, Joe. Good morning everyone. For those of you who don't know who I am, my name is Joe. I'm one of the elders on staff and it's great to be able to be bringing to you this morning God's Word. A particularly big warm welcome to you if you are visiting us for the very first time this morning. Maybe you've checked in online or a friend has sent you the link. Whatever the case might be, it's great to have you with us and we hope you enjoy the service. But if you're an SBC congregant and you're checking in, man, it's great to have you with us as well. I am longing for the day that we're able to do this together in person. But in the meantime, I'm happy by God's grace that we are able to do this over the internet um, and still somehow in some way pursue after community. Just a reminder, we have been going through the book of Joshua and we have been learning lessons from the book of Joshua to how we can live a courageous uh, faith. Uh, the Israelites that have gone into the promised land do some incredible things that we are wanting to imitate and learn from and we have seen them do that so far. But at the same time, we have started to see them make some mistakes. And uh, we, like in today's text, are wanting to notice those mistakes and we are wanting to avoid them. We want to learn from their mistakes so that we don't have to do the same thing. Enough from me. I'm going to hand over to Andrew Riley and Michelle Riley, a wonderful couple at SBC. Andrew is one of the deacons um, at SBC. And Michelle, his better half, is uh, the house mother at Breath of Life, this incredible organization. If you haven't heard of them before, go and check them out after the service. They are great. They're going to be reading from Joshua, parts of Joshua 9 and parts of Joshua 10. At the end, they will hand over back to me and then we will dive in and unpack it. Over to you guys. Good morning, SBC family. It's so great to be with you guys this morning. We'll be reading out of the book of Joshua. Joshua 9, verse 1 to 15. As soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country and in the lowland, all along the coast of the great sea towards Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Havites, and the Jebusites heard of this, they gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they, on their part, acted with cunning and went and made ready provisions and took worn-out sacks for their donkeys and wineskins, worn out and torn and mended, with worn-out patched sandals on their feet and worn-out clothes. 
and all their provisions were dry and crumbly. And they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, We have come from a distant country, so now make a covenant with us. But the men of Israel said to the Hivites, Perhaps you live among us, then how can we make a covenant with you? They said to Joshua, We are your servants. And Joshua said to them, Who are you, and where do you come from? They said to him, From a distant country your servants have come, because of the name of the Lord your God. For we have heard a report of him, and all that he did in Egypt, and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites, who were beyond the Jordan, to Sion, the king of Heshbon, and to Og, king of Bashan, who lived in Eshtoreth. So our elders and all inhabitants of our country said to us, Take provisions in your hand for the journey, and go to meet them, and say to them, We are your servants. Come now, make a covenant with us. Here is our bread. It was still warm when we took it from our houses, as our food for the journey. And on the day we set out to come to you, but now, behold, it is dry and crumbly. These wineskins were new when we filled them, and behold, they have burst. And his garments and sandals of ours are worn out from the very long journey. So the men took some of their provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. And Joshua made peace with them, and made a covenant with them, to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore to them. Joshua 10, verse 1 to 5. As soon as Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had captured Ai and had devoted it to destruction, doing to Ai and its king as he had done to Jericho and its king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them, he feared greatly because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities, and became because it was greater than Ai and all its men were warriors. So Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent to Hoham, king of Hebron, to Purim, king of Jarmuth, to Japhia, king of Lachish, and to Deborah, king of Eglon, saying, Come up to me and help me, and let us strike Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and for the people of Israel. Then the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Latish, and the king of Eglon, gathered their forces and went up with all their armies and encamped against Gibeon and made war against it. Thank you, Andrew and Michelle. Really appreciate that. I just want to remind us of what happened in chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. It says the following, As soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country and in the low land all along the coast of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites heard of this, they gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. My very first point for this morning is that sin has lasting consequences. Sin has lasting consequences. What we see in chapter 9 verses 1 and 2 is that the surrounding nations have heard of the exploits of Israel and what they have done. 
Now, this is the third time in the book of Joshua that we see that the surrounding nations have heard of their exploits. But what happens in chapter 9 is very different to what has happened in the previous two times. In chapter 2 and in chapter 5, when we hear that the nations around Israel have heard of their exploits, we see a result of their hearts melting. They lose strength to be able to fight against the nations and they either cower to Israel or they hide like we see in Jericho behind their walls, not willing to fight, hoping of, with all hope that uh, the people of Israel won't be able to breach their walls. But in this particular case, what we see is not a melting of hearts or a lack of strength, but rather we see that the nations around Israel muster up strength and gather together to fight against Israel. Why? Why has it been different from the previous chapters and to now in chapter 9? Well, I think it's because of chapter 7, last week's sermon. If you missed it, I'd encourage you to really go and listen to that. But what happens in last week's sermon is we see that the people of Israel go and they try and fight against this small little town named Ai. And they go against it and they're going to go into battle and Israel get convincingly defeated and they run and retreat with the tail between their legs. And as they get back to camp, they consult God and say, what has happened? Where were you? And God says, I did not go with you because there was sin in your camp and they find out that there was a man named Achan who had gathered together stuff that he should have destroyed kept it for his own profit and gain which was sinful and as a result God didn't go with him they deal with him harshly to say the least and then as a result when the people of Israel go back into back battle against this small little town against Ai they really have no problem against uh, Ai at all and they defeat Ai and another town named Bethel quite convincingly and so the people in the other nations have heard against heard of this and they have strength why because they realize that the people of Israel aren't nearly as indefeatable or invincible as they initially thought they were. They thought that the people of Israel were just going to conquer everyone. But now that they've seen them being defeated against a small little town named Ai, there's confidence that if they gather their big mighty cities with their great fierce armies and they combine them together, that they will be able to defeat this people of Israel. And who would have said that if there wasn't the sin that took place in the camp of Israel through Achan, that maybe they would have just walked in and defeated the small little city I with no uh, problems whatsoever. And as they marched on into the promised land, what could have happened is that the hearts would have continued to melt and people would have still lacked strength to be able to fight the people of Israel. And the uh, this marching in this obtaining of the promised land could have been really easy and simple compared to what it turns out to be because of sin. The consequence of sin had a lasting effect on the people of Israel that it made their uh, objective of obtaining the promised land very, very difficult, which could have been really easy. And an example of that is the people of Gibeon. Gibeon, a great big city, are different to the other surrounding cities. They are not fooled by a small little defeat, but they see the magnitude of this God that Israel have. And so they come and they surrender 
Granted, they do so deceitfully, but they come and surrender and make an alliance with the people of Israel because they realize they stand no chance. Now, that could have been the result of all the people in the nations if Israel had not been defeated by I. And so what this teaches us is that there is a consequence to sin. And there's a caution and a warning here. It doesn't let us quickly deal with the sin aspect as we see in chapter 7 and chapter 8. It just deal with it and move on. But rather what chapter 9 is cautioning us and warning us yet again to make sure we deal with it is that sin has lasting consequences in our lives. And Matt preached a brilliant sermon on this last week. So I don't want to reteach what he taught. Go listen to it yourself of the dangers of sin and the immediate effects of sin. But this particular section warns us and cautions us to cut off sin, to cast aside, as we looked at Hebrews 12 verse 1, to throw it aside because it will have lasting effects in your life if you don't. There is this uh, understanding in the church today that we can live the lives that we want to, we can dabble and, and meddle with sin, it's okay, because know what, God will just forgive us. Now that's a half truth. It's true that God will forgive you if you come and you repent. From whatever sin you have, if you come with the right heart and you repent before God, He will forgive you for your sin. But what this passage shows is that though sin has been dealt with, though you have been forgiven and God is with you as you march forward, there are still consequences to the sins that you have dealt with in the past. If you have an affair, if you have an affair, it will. Uh, God will forgive you for it. If you come and repent with the right heart, He will forgive you for the sin that you have committed. But it will have an effect on your marriage. It might be a lasting effect that lasts years, if not decades, of not the, your whole marriage. It, it might have an effect with your relationship with the children. There are consequences to the actions that you take, and the warning here again is to cast sin aside. Throw it aside, be ruthless, because it will affect the uh, journey that you are about to take on. It will have lasting consequences. But what this passage shows us is and calls us to do is not only to lay sin aside, but to lay aside more than that. To lay aside things that might hinder what God has called us to do, that might hinder the race that God has called us to run, even if those things aren't sinful things. We see this in this passage, don't we? The Gibeonites have heard of the magnitude of God, of his great might, of his marching forward, he's marching forward with the people of Israel as he's defeated all the nations ahead of them. And what they come and do is they go, man, we, we need to make sure that we make right with this people because they're going to wipe us out. They're going to be ruthless and take us out. And so they deceptively put on old clothes, get old food and burst wineskins to make sure that they journey to far distance. And as they arrive to the people of Israel, they say, we are from a far distant land. Look at all our stuff. Look how ragged we are. We are from a far, far land. We have heard of your might. We have heard of your great God, and we want to make a pact with you. We are a strong nation with mighty warriors. We are uh, wanting to come and align with you, to be allies with you. 
Man, this is a great deal on paper, isn't it? This is what nations did. They had allies that would come to their aid in times of trouble. And for the first time in the history of Israel, they see other nations coming to them and going, we recognize how great you are and we want to be alongside you. We want to serve you. We want to be in an alliance with you. Oh, man, this seems like a no-brainer on paper, doesn't it? And so what happens is the people of Israel and their leaders go, yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. And the text explicitly says that they do not go and consult God. And as a result, we will see later there are consequences to uh, taking on something that is a good thing, but not necessarily a God thing. And that's my second point. My second point is that we are called to cast aside Good things that aren't necessarily God things. Not all good things are God things. We see this in the passage that we looked at last week in Hebrews 12 verses uh, 1. It says this, Let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Now, when we initially read that text, we can all agree. We, we notice and we agree that we are to lay aside sin. We spoke about that last week, to cast it off, to throw it off. But I want you to notice that the, the, the writer of Hebrews is not asking us to lay sin aside so that we might run this race well that God has called us to. But we also are meant to lay aside weight and sin. So if we look here, there are things that hinder our race, that weigh us down, that don't necessarily fall into the category of sin, but aren't good for us. Not all good things are God things. And so we are to make sure that though though things might seem good, and though they might uh, seem like these will benefit us, that we make sure that they connect with the purpose that God has called us to. And if they don't, we are to cast them off, to throw them aside so that we might run this race that he has called us to do and to do so well. Now, this will vary. I can't necessarily give you a long list of what those things are because it will vary between person and calling. We all each have a different race that we are asked to run. We each live in different contexts. And so there are different. For some of you, this might be a business deal. This might be a new venture or the idea of moving to another city. For some of you, it might be the time that you are spending, uh, how you spend your time after you get home from a hard day's worth of work or certain close friends that you might have. Or it might be the amount of time that you spend on your cell phone or computer or in front of the television or what you watch in front of the television there might be a variety of things that we ought to cast off depending on who we are but there is a real challenge to this it's not so simple to identify because these are good things it is hard for us to notice that these are things that aren't necessarily good for our race that God has called us to run so how do we identify what these good things are that we ought to cast off. Well, I think the very first thing that we ought to do is we are to consult God about future things. And we see that this is a problem with the text. Again, we see in the text that the people of Israel do not consult God about their future. And that's what we are meant to do. When it comes to things like new business ventures, trying something new, moving cities, changing jobs, moving our kids from one school uh, to another, 
there is an importance that we come before God and we consult him and we ask, is this a good thing that you want me to carry? And will this be a part of the race that you have asked me to run? And the way we do this is we make sure that we come and we dive into God's word. We spend time unpacking it and reading it, praying, seeking out God's word so that he might lead us through it. We see in Psalm 119 uh, verse 105, it says, your word is a light, uh, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. The psalmist will say that we are to commit our ways to the Lord and he will make our paths straight. It is important that we come before God and seek out his word and pray to him and ask him, Lord, this is, seems like a good thing, but is this the good thing that is a part of the race that you have called me to run? Or will this be a weight that weighs me down and makes my race a whole lot harder? And the first prize that we need to look for and seek for and ask for is that God will give us direct verses that speak to our situation. That we, will, that we will find a verse that we are able to cling on to and say, God says yes, or God says no. So this verse here, or this verse here has spoken to the situation that I am meant to go into or not go into. And the reason why that is important and something that we need to seek for is because if we have that, we say, yes, this is a venture that God wants me to take, or this is the job that God wants me to take, or this is the city that God wants me to move to. Here is the verse. When we move or we change jobs, when things get tough, and inevitably they will, and we feel like this is difficult and hard and we're wanting to quit, then we're able to look back and hold on to this verse and go, but no, God said that I must go and do this. And so instead of being a weight that weighs us down, this decision and this verse that we hold on to becomes an encouragement for, a, for us to be able to run this race with endurance in the midst of difficult times. Does that make sense? Instead of this thing becoming, oh, I want to quit and I can't continue on running, suddenly this verse and holding on, knowing that this is where God leads us, helps us to run this race better in the midst of hardship. It is vital that we seek the counsel of God. So whether things are hard or easy, we know that we are in the will of God. And this is the place that he wants us to be. But I got to admit that there are times in my experience that I have sought the Lord on big future decisions. And there will be times in your life where you ask him, Lord, show me, show me, show me. And you spend time in God's word. You spend time praying. And because of a deadline or because of a situation, you need him to give an answer soon. And you just don't have a verse that you can cling on to. What do you do in those moments? Well, we need to follow, I think, the principle that is found in Colossians 3, verse 15. It says the following. It says, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. We let God's peace rule our decision, be the umpire that helps us make, do we do this or do we not do this? There will be times where you don't have the scripture, but if you do not have peace to take this option after seeking God as advice and his guidance, then you do not take it. You do not say yes to a new venture. You do not say yes to a great business deal. You do not say yes to moving cities for a new job if you do not have peace in your heart because you let the peace of Christ rule your heart and rule your decisions. Uh, let me give you an example. I, about three years ago, had finished my first stint with St uh, Sterling, this church, 
I was unemployed um, and had a pregnant wife. I was doing odd ends law jobs at a school, doing some coaching, sport, making some money to try con contribute and uh, be active and bring money in as I, as, as I should. But I really had no pastoral position opened up uh, coming my way. I had a, a one's church that we were in discussions with. It seemed really good, but immediately a quick U-turn and suddenly that door was closed. And so I spent lots of times, as you can imagine, a husband with a wife with a child on the way, praying, saying, Lord, I need you to open some doors here. I need you to miraculously work. I need you to open up the right doors for me to walk through. And out of nowhere, really out of nowhere, a church had met without my knowledge and they had put my name forward. They had voted and said, we want this guy to be our lead pastor. He will lead our church. And this came with a, a great salary. It came with a manse. It was a pastoral position. All the things I had been praying and asking God for. And it came. All I had to do was say, yes, I didn't have to have an interview. I didn't have to go and preach. All I had to do was say yes. And I took this before the Lord, Alyssa and I, we, we spent time praying and seeking and praying and seeking. And the more we prayed and the more we discussed with each other, we had no peace to say yes. I mean, that is crazy, Joe. You have a pregnant wife, you're unemployed with no other prospects ahead. And this one comes and delivers. It comes really much delivered on a golden platter for you to take. And I had no peace. At the much of the amazement of friends and the amazement of uh, my parents that I would have to go and say no to no prospects but to turn this one down. And it was not long after that that Sterling would approach me, Matt Johnson, to come and ask whether or not I would work part-time for Sunny Ridge to come and preach just to, and be a part-time pastor. Then it was a full-time. Then it was, hey, why don't you be called? And then it was, hey, come to Sterling. And I am convinced without a shadow of a doubt that that day when I turned down that position with a pregnant wife and no other prospects because I had no peace in my heart, that that was God leading me. And I am right where I am meant to be. We need in moments where we do not have clarity, we do not have scripture, we allow the peace of God to rule our hearts on our future decisions because not all good things are God things, and we need to make sure that we make the right decision there. But secondly, we need to consult God, not only on future decisions like the people of Israel needed to do, but also we need to consult God on the current weights that are hindering us from running our race well now. And this is challenging because they are good things and they are in our lives at the moment. So to identify these is really, really tough. Most of us, if I had to ask you, what are the good things in your life that aren't necessarily God things that you need to cast aside? Off the top of our head, we might go nothing. But I guarantee you there might be some. And so what we need to do is in these moments is we need to consult God to help us to identify what those things are. Again, we are to spend time in his word to let his word shape us through the power of his Holy Spirit to convict us and to shape us and help us to identify those things. As we spend time with God in our daily routine of meeting with him, ask him to show you. Be direct. Say, Lord, today I want you to show me what are the good things in my life that aren't necessarily God things. And to make sure that you cast those things off. There's a couple of things here that I want to speak about, though. The first is that we need to make sure that we are spending time with God in order for this to happen. This is not going to necessarily happen haphazardly. 
These are poignant questions that we ask God to reveal in our lives. And this primarily will come through his word and us seeking, stopping, listening to his voice so that he might speak into our lives. Yes, sanctification happens without us even knowing, but it happens far, far, far quicker when we ask him for us, ask him to mold us and shape us and ask those questions. If we are genuinely listening, he will speak into our lives. So make sure you consult him on that. But I also want to say, I want to caution us here that we must not over-spiritualize this either. There is a danger that we think, well, I need to stop this so that I can read my Bible more. And for some of you, that might be the case. You're giving no time at all to God and spending time with him, but instead you're going running or you're spending playing games or you're just relaxing far more than you need to be. And you need to cast it off so you might prioritize the time with the Lord. But the reality of the matter is each and every single one of us can pray more. Each and every one of us can read our Bibles more. And the danger is that we never do anything else other than read and pray. And we go from having reading our Bibles three hours a day, which is incredible, to suddenly needing to read four. And, and the, the reality is that we'll never be able to do enough. But I caution you not to over-spiritualize this because these good things that God has given us, they are good things. There are good things that God has given us to do, to enjoy. And when we do those things, it will renew us and refresh us. Some of you love exercising. Go ahead and do those things. Prioritize those things. Make sure you do it. And in doing so, glorify God that he would give you such a thing to delight in and refresh you. Thank him for it. Delight in him. Glorify him in doing and giving you the things that you enjoy to do. As you read those books, as you watch that television program, as you spend time playing, or having fun, glorify God for those things. But make sure you don't cut those things off altogether because God has graciously given you those things so that you might be refreshed and so that you might run this race well for his glory. But again, there's another caution. There's the other side of the coin is that we must not let those things become too dominant in our lives. Good things, too much of a good thing can become a bad thing. So too much exercise, if you're spending hours and hours and hours and hours each day exercising at the cost of spending time with the Lord and other things that he's called you to do, that's a problem. If you're spending hours and hours and hours in front of the television, that is a problem. Teenagers, if you're playing games on your PlayStation or in front of your computer, you can't, that is too much of that is a bad thing. Parents, you can thank me later. But having said that, parents, some computer is not the end of the world either. And so there's this importance that we ought to find a good balance of not too much of this good thing because it can become a hindrance to our race that we run. So consult God on what are the current weights in your life that you need to remove and then have courageous faith to cast those aside. Secondly, I think, or thirdly, I think what we need to do is we need to consult people that are close to us. Ask those around you for advice on what are some of the good things in your life that aren't necessarily God things. How can you cast those off is by asking them to identify those problems. Particularly if you're married, I want you to know that your spouse knows some stuff about you that they have noticed. And if you ask them with no strings attached, don't let this turn into a fight or an argument or get grumpy with them. But ask them, what are some of the good things in my life that I'm doing too much of? 
or are necessary for the race that I have run and ask them to point them out, they will be able to identify a few. It might be a pastor, it might be a parent, teenagers, ask your parents, parents, ask your teenagers. Let them allow to have freedom to speak into your life in this area. And I promise you, they will be able to identify some areas. And more than one will be best. If you can ask more than one person in your life, hey, what are some of these areas that I need to stop? It's better because Alyssa and I, she will be able to tell me some of the things in my life that I need to watch out for. But there are also things that we do together that we might need to stop. And we both are blinded to this area. But if I ask a good friend to speak into it, he or she might be able to point out Alyssa's blind spot or my blind spots that we are able to sort out. So ask more than one people, a, a person. They will be able to help you in this area. But having said that, I got to admit that this will be tough. This will require a courageous faith to do. Because these are good things, so often it is difficult for us to say no. It is going to be difficult to turn down a good business adventure. It's going to be difficult to be able to take a, a hobby that we are delighting in too much and cut it down in half or, or to do it less. How do we do that? How do we get the strength to do it? Well, I think there's a couple of things. I th firstly, courageous faith or faith in general, and I say this a lot, is stirred and sturdy when we focus our eyes on the character of God. Our faith is most secure when it is centered on who God is. I say that a lot. And so in this particular case, I think a part of the character of God that we need to focus on is that we need to realize that God is good. We need to understand the goodness of God. God is good all the time, all the time. God is good. And we need to see that because if we do, it will stir up faith to make the courageous faith to be able to cast aside the good things that are necessary, God things, and even sin that is in our lives. We see in uh, Psalm 25 verse 8, in a general sense, it says, God uh, says, good and upright is the Lord. God is good, is upright. This is the character of God, as Psalm 25 verse 8 says. But he's not only good in a general sense, but scripture also shows us that he's good in action towards you and towards me. We see this in Psalm 34 verse 8. It says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord. The invitation of Psalm uh, 34 verse 8 says, come and taste that the Lord is good. God is inviting you to taste the goodness of God. He is good towards you. and He is asking you to trust in him, to lay these things aside and enjoy the goodness of God. And blessed is the man or woman who trusts in the goodness of God and lays those things aside. We will be happy. We will delight in the goodness of God if we lay these things aside. And it's incredibly important for us to see that God is too good towards us. But not only in action, but also in command and instruction. We see this in Psalm 119 verses uh, 68. It says, you are good and do good. And the request of the psalmist is, teach me your statutes. Teach me your commands. The psalmist has realized the goodness of God who, in his character and the goodness in his action means that his commands and his instructions as seen in scripture are there for his goodness and his benefit and his delight. And so he says, teach me your commands. May I know them and do them because it's for my goodness. 
So, so important for courageous faith to understand that God's instruction towards us is not to make us miserable and have a boring life, but rather God's instructions and commands towards us to lay aside good things is so that we might have a joyful life and that we might have a purpose, a purposeful life. God has given us his instruction because he is good and he wants us to have a purposeful, joyful life as we are obedient to him and we follow him. Now, this will be tough. It will be tough to lay this aside, but it only comes when we recognize the goodness of God and his goodness towards us in action attitude and his goodness towards us and his commands that we are able to cast those things aside because it will be better for me to do so than if I don't. But let me also say that another reason why we can have strength to do it is because there are consequences if we don't. There are consequences to not laying aside good things that aren't God things. We see so in this text. We see that the Uh, Israelites have come and they've made this covenant and pact without consulting God with the the people of Gibeon. And the Gibeonites find themselves in a war. Uh, Chapter 10 shows us that the king, um, Adonai Zedek, uh, who was the king of Jerusalem, is fearful not of the people of Israel. Notice that. He is not scared of Israel, but he is scared of the Gibeonites. The Gibeonites who are relatively close to the city of Jerusalem, near his nation. He sees them as an ally, has suddenly swept and fought, joined the enemy. And he's not scared of this people that he thinks he can defeat, but rather who he's scared of is this mighty city of Gibeon, which the text says has fierce warriors. All their men are fierce warriors. And so he gathers all the other kings to fight the Gibeonites, not Israel. Ah, but because of the pact, because of the uh, alliance that has been made between the Gibeonites and Israel, Israel are bound to get into a fight that is not theirs to make, not theirs to fight. It has a consequence in their actions. They now find themselves in a war and a battle against five mighty nations with big armies all gathered together because of a pact that they took, which seemed good, but yet was not a God thing. And immediately there is a consequence to this action. And so again, a motive for us to cast aside good things that aren't God things is to remember that even if it seems good, there will be consequences down the line that might lead us into battles and fights that we do not want to be a part of, that were never our fights in the first place. God never intended us to have those fights. That becomes our second motive. So our two motives to be able to lay aside good things that aren't God things, to get the faith to do so, is one, we, and this is the most important, is we need to realize the goodness of God in his instruction to do so. He's good in character, he's good towards me, and his command is good. That's important. The second one, however, is maybe a little bit more selfish, is to realize that there will be consequences to our actions that God does not intend us to go through if we go and take this good thing that is not a God thing. But I want to end off with this, and I think this is important. This is my final uh, point uh, this morning, is that even though there will be consequences to our sin, lasting consequences that we have spoken about, 
and consequences to our actions of, of not casting off good things to God things, uh, not casting off good things that aren't God things, is that God is able to redeem those situations. God is in the business of redemption. He redeemed us and he can redeem our bad decisions as, as well. Um, we see this uh, famously expressed in Romans 8 verses 28. It says, and we know uh, that for those who, are, who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. This text says wonderfully that God is able to take all things, even our blunders, even our mistakes, even our sinful actions, even our uh, desires to get good things that aren't God things. He's able to take those moments and use for his glory and for our good, for those who are called according to his purpose. It is absolutely a reassuring text for us. We, we see it wonderfully in, in chapter 10, that God will come along and he will, without a shadow of the doubt, go and win and, def- and, 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 and defeat the enemy. This was not because of Israel's might, though he will go and strengthen their hands so that they might be able to fight and fight well. But God is the one who wins the day. The text explicitly says that he went and defeated more than half the army himself through massive hailstones that came down. God comes and says, look, I will do more than the Gibeonites and the Israelites put together in my own strength. Look at me. Look how mighty I am. I've defeated more than you guys have and your swords. The Israelites are fighting with their swords and they're going against these five kings and they're running out of daylight. So what does God do? He just stops the sun and the moon from moving so that the Israelites might be able to do this battle in one day. God is glorified and seen, not as just the God of Israel, but he is seen as the God of heaven and the God of earth. His name is glorified massively against the nations that doubted his might and power in the first place. God can use all things for his glory and he will do so. But also, as a side thing, the Israelites benefit from this, don't they? They've gone to having to fight these five kings to defeating them in one day. Five uh, nations that they would have had to take on in cities that they would have had to fight with their five kings at different points. They're able to defeat them in one day because God is able to use even our mistakes and our blunders for his good and our uh, for, for our good and his glory. So let me end off with this. Does that mean then that we are to continue on as, as normal? Because if God is able to use even our mistakes and our blunders um, and even our desire to hold on good things that aren't God things for his glory, does that mean that we should just continue on as normal? Because ultimately, at the end of the day, it will be glorifying to God. He will use it for his glory. And I can see the logic behind that, but it is flawed. The reality of the matter is God is most glorified. And hear me here. God is most glorified when we are obedient to him. 
God is most glorified when we realize the magnitude of Him, that we see Him as the God of heaven and earth, when we realize that His ways are higher than our ways, when we understand that He can see the future and He can understand where our lives are going and we can't. And when He says, this good thing is not the part of the plan that I have, and we deny ourselves good things so that we might be obedient to God, God is glorified through that obedience more than he is when he has to clean up our mess for our disobedience. When we are obedient to God, he is glorified. And in the purpose he leads us into, he will be glorified as well. We do not continue on as normal so that we can say, ah, God will get glory if, uh, even though I messed it up. One, it will be very tough. There will be consequences to this action that's coming our way. Yes, God will get the glory, but he is far more glorified when we are obedient from the beginning and we surrender our lives to him and we follow after him in those moments. He is glorified and lifted up because we see him for who he is and we submit to him knowing that he knows best. And in the purpose that we live and in the race that we run, surrendering our lives to him and laying aside sin and laying aside good things that aren't God things, in those moments he is glorified above all else in that and that is why we will do so and do so well so to bring it all into a quick summary there are sins in our lives and there are good things that aren't guard things that we need to cast off and we do so and we have the strength and the, and the ability to do so when we consult god and when he shows us what it is and we trust in his goodness knowing that he is good towards us and that he is given these commands to us because of his goodness and he wants us to live a life that ultimately glorifies him. So go ahead, spend time with the Lord, ask friends and family to show you what are some of the things that you need to lay aside for the glory of God and pursue after it and run this race well, Sterling. I love you and I miss you and hope to see you soon. Let us pray. Oh, Lord, we, um, we just want to acknowledge that you are the God of heaven and earth. You're a God who's far mightier than we are. You're a God who is a, above all else. And you're able to use all things for the good of those who love him according to his purpose. But Lord, our ultimate desire is that we might live a life that is glorifying to you. We want to pursue after you. We want to be able to be obedient, to surrender our lives to you for the glory of Christ. And so, Lord, we ask that you will, one, help us to identify the sin in our lives, that we might cast it off. We do not want the consequences of sin, but rather we want to run joyfully in righteousness and holiness for you. But also, Lord, we want you to please help us to be able to identify the good things in our lives that aren't necessarily God things, so that we might be able to lay those things aside and run this race well for the glory of Jesus Christ, we pray. Help us, Lord, for to have courageous faith that we might trust in the goodness of God and your goodness and your commands and your goodness in action towards us, that we might run this race well in obedience to you, so that we might glorify you and we might live a life of joy and of purpose. In Jesus' name, amen.